record it. So uh, we're going to record it, and it'll be on the web for those who uh, missed out this week. Um, so I'm fresh back from camp, as you know. If you're unfamiliar, if you're a guest with us this morning, I'd just like to say welcome. My name is Pastor Jamie. Uh, my wife Heidi and I co-pastor the church here. I can get my iPad to open up and I get my notes. Um, it's kind of funny. A lot of times we do these services like this, and I realize it's pretty much like all guys except for one singer. Sarah was the token girl up front, it seemed like, this morning. Uh, but we believe in women in ministry. We believe in women having places of authority, and they are all over the church. So if you're looking and you're like, hey, there's only guys up front today, white guys especially, that's really not us. It's not a true representation of who we are. Um, we, are we are all about women and uh, people of other colors and stuff being up front and uh, involved and in leadership and taking high places of authority in our church. So it's awesome. Anyway, here we are. Uh, it feels like a lot of water under the bridge since the last time I stood before you guys. Like you, four days of middle school camp is kind of like 16 weeks of, uh, not even regular, I don't even know, 16 weeks of like high octane, high energy life all packed into those four days but I want to say this, I had a privilege of taking the middle schoolers to, to camp. Uh, you know, at, at first, when I first figured out that this was something I needed to do, I was not feeling like it was a privilege. I was like, I realized though, at this camp, this is really awesome, 15 years ago, 15 years ago that month, or this month, it was last month, I was at that middle school camp with Heidi and with Emma, our, our oldest daughter, who was at the time just over a year old, and we took a group of middle schoolers from Lake Stevens, along with uh, churches all over on the west side. And we went to that very camp, and I was in charge of the games at that time, instead of some other guy who was like, so we did bubble games. We did all the same stuff they did 15 years ago, and it's still awesome. That's how awesome it was 15 years ago. And we realized that, that it was at that very camp that Emma had her first watermelon, one of the camp counselor people is like, hey, does she eat watermelon? I'm like, not yet. It's like, here, little girl, have some watermelon. And she's like, ah. And, and she still eats watermelon like that. Um, so that camp, and then our kids have been going to that camp for years now. And it's a place of great spiritual presence and power when you bring people together who love Jesus and want to encounter him. So it's a privilege to be involved in that. It was a privilege to sleep in an open tent in a thunderstorm getting wet. It was a privilege to get stung by a bee as I stuck my hand into a bag of gummy worms. It was a privilege to smell all of that goodness in that tent because all of those things gave me the privilege of watching them worship Jesus with all of their hearts and all their minds. It gave me the privilege of watching over 500 middle school students gather at the door to the church shouting, let us in, let us in. Not because they were ready for a show, because they wanted to rush to the stage so they could worship Jesus with their hands lifted high and the jumping and their hearts just going for it all full gas. I think there's something for us to learn in how middle schoolers approach going to church. So just put that in your heart, that sense of anticipation, that sense of desire to be in the presence of Jesus, because it's a privilege to be in the presence of Jesus. I got one amen on that. So if you're unchurched background, we say amen, which means let it be, or I agree, and we just shout that out occasionally. It's kind of, you get to be, uh, you have like Tourette's syndrome or something where you just go, amen, you know, just all of a sudden. When you agree with something or you think it's really awesome or God speaks to you in a moment, go ahead and just do that. So let's just practice all together. Let's say amen. amen. 
Okay, it's not churchy, it's not weird, it's just what we do here, all right? So uh, a lot of people will talk down about middle schoolers because of their emotions or their silliness, but it is a privilege to be with them and to get to be emotional and silly with them. So it was awesome. It was so awesome. Um, And it's a privilege to get to show people the love of Jesus, that they get to hear that no matter what, no matter who they are, no matter how old they are, whether they're a baby or they're an elderly person or an awkward middle schooler who's trying to figure out life, Jesus loves them. You guys are going to get to be, you're going to be with me any minute now. So that's really a big part of the message that that I want to explore this morning, which is a continuation of our series, which is just one word from Jesus. If you want to turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 8, we're going to continue looking at the stories of Jesus that are right here packed. There's several of them packed right here in Matthew chapter 8. Next week, we're going to hop to chapter 9 just a little bit. Um, Today we're going to actually look at two sections of Scripture that are often separated. I've heard many, many sermons on both of these passages individually, but never the two passages together. And it's really interesting, the, you know, kind of the context of what's going on here is, you know, the Bible was, was, it happened, and then about 80, 90 years after it happened, people were actually writing down those stories that were being passed down by eyewitnesses, and they're gathered in these stories, and then 150, 200, 300, no, 2,000 years later, I'm like trying to figure out how long ago this was. We've taken it and we've broken it into chapters and verses and all that stuff. So it's easy for us to understand. We've given it headings and titles, but these were never meant to be broke up like this. So it's just to help us out. So we're going to put these two passages back together and learn something from them. So if you remember the sections before what what had been going on, uh, we have Jesus who has preached the longest sermon in history, right? Several hours, several days, who knows how long this thing went on. And people were so into it that they actually stayed and listened. And it says that they were filled with awe and wonder because he preached as one with authority, not like the people who had authority, who had actual authority. He preached unlike them and preached with greater authority because he had authority from God. And then he goes out from that and he goes out and he begins to act on what he taught on. So that's kind of where we're at here. We're going to look at these two passages, Jesus calming the sea, and the second is where he's casting out a whole passel of demons. Yeah, um, I said that, passel of demons, like goose, geeses come in a, a gaggle, and uh, mooses come in a herd, deer come in a herd, I think demons come in a passel. So you can chuckle when I make stupid comments like that, it's just fine. Yeah, amen! All right, so let's read it. Here it comes, uh, Matthew chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, everybody say, behold. behold. There arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep, he being Jesus, obviously. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds. Mark, the book of Mark says that he said to the wind and waves, Peace be still. So, and the sea, or to the wind and the sea, And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadareans, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, say behold. Behold, Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out, and they went into the pigs. And, say it with me, Behold, 
the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen fled going into the city and they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And say it again, behold, all the city came to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Okay, so let's just start right there. Who asked Jesus to go away, right? He just cast out two demons. He just crossed the sea. He calmed the storm. Everybody saw what happened. They knew what was going on. And they say, hey, could you go somewhere else? He was kind of threatening their livelihood. And I think that's weird. But here's what we have happening. So again, Jesus taught on the mountain. And he had the longest sermon ever, but he captivated the crowd. And following that, he comes down the mountain. Aren't you glad that Jesus comes down the mountain? Because when he comes down the mountain, he starts living out. He's not just all talk now. He's action on what he spoke on. Now, theologically, we call this, this is the term that God condescends. And that's not like what we think, like, oh, you just spoke to me so condescendingly. You're such a jerk. You know, and that's where we think that the person says that they, they think in their mind that they are higher or better than you. They talk to you like you're such a low life. That's not what we mean when we say that God condescends. When we say that God condescends, we say that he chooses to come down to our level to love and to serve us. See, God creates the world, and then he comes down to walk with Adam and Eve. God's people become enslaved in Egypt, and then God comes down in the form of a pillar of fire and a, and a cloud to lead them out of Egypt and into the, into the desert and lead them through the desert into the promised land. Later, when the people of Israel are enslaved to sin, when the people of Israel are enslaved to Rome, when people of Israel are in dire need of salvation, at just the right time, the Bible says, Jesus comes down from heaven. And he doesn't just come down from his throne in heaven. He comes down into the smallest form of a human being as a baby, in a cradle, in a manger, in a, in a, in a stable, which was probably a cave amongst the poorest people in Israel. God comes down. And then later, Jesus is lifted up high on a cross. And he comes down and descends to the very lowest of all places. He descends to hell. But guess what? This is the cool thing about God condescending. He comes down in love to love and serve us. And he serves us as as he only can by giving his life. And then he comes back up. And then he rises again to the highest place, back to heaven, from which he says someday again he will come down. That's what we mean when we say God condescends. And that's what's going on in these passages, that that Jesus was up on a mountain and he's come down. When Jesus is up on the mountain, he's speaking to us. He's showing us new things about who he is. But when he comes down into the valley, into the desert, into the city streets, into our lives, that's where healing happens. That's where miracles happen. That's where demons are cast out. And that's what's taking place in these passages. So Jesus has come down to the mountain and the people are pressing around him. He's touched a leper and healed him. He has gone and he is just with a word he has spoken and healed a centurion, right? And after, after that, he goes and he even heals a mother-in-law. How many of you have a mother-in-law? He healed even the mother-in-law, right, of Peter. He's healed all these people. He's touched people. He's even cast out some demons. And Jesus is at this point completely gassed, okay? He has preached for hours or days or however long. He's healed and touched all these people. He is just wiped out. And so he says to his disciples, who live in this town of Capernaum, he says, guys, get a boat ready. We're going to go to the other side of the lake. The lake is 13 miles long and about eight miles wide. And the point from which they were going to go to the other side was probably only about four or five miles. Not real far, 
but they're going to go out across the water. But the people are so anxious to be in Jesus' presence, like middle schoolers waiting to get into church at camp, shouting, let me in, let me in. They are pressing in around him. They're, he basically pushed into the boat, and people start climbing into the other boats around him. If anybody's got a boat, they're in it, and they're following him out onto the water. It's like the paparazzi, right? Yeah, Doug knows all about the paparazzi. They're always following Doug around, trying to get pictures so they can get the inside scoop and put it on the front of People magazine or whatever the latest uh, news celebrity sh- magazines are. They try to catch you off guard whenever they can. And so they're just pressing in on Jesus. And so the disciples are rowing for their lives. Now, these guys are experienced seamen. At least four of them we know were fishermen who lived in that town, who owned boats, who worked that lake day in and day out, who caught fish all the time. They knew every mood of that water. So when they set out, the sky was probably clear. In fact, it says that they're heading, and, and if you look at the map, they're heading from the west to the east, and it was late in the evening, so the sun was probably setting behind their backs. The sky was probably this beautiful color of orange, and it was just gorgeous. A gorgeous evening to be on the lake if there wasn't people going, Jesus, Jesus, come, you know, and shouting at you, following you in the boats. So it's a race, and they're headed out into the water, but something happens that surprises everybody. As they're paddling along, a wind comes up. The text says, behold. Now, you guys remember that behold means to stand in awe and wonder, right? Behold, to stand in awe and wonder. Matthew, who is writing this down years later, remembers even the disciples were surprised. They were standing in awe and wondering as this storm approached them. What happens is, out of the Golan Heights on the, on the east bank of Israel, on the east bank of the, of, the, of, the, of the Sea of Galilee, there's the word I was looking for, out of the heights will come these storms that are random. They, the heat in the desert heats up and mixes with the cold air, and it rolls a storm out unlike anything you've ever seen. When the Greek, the text here says, a great storm came, we're not talking about like a great storm that we might see around here, where the wind is blowing so hard that things are going sideways. We're talking about cyclonic winds, okay? spinning and hurling dust and dirt and debris. It's like a tornado came out of the mountains, hits the water, the waves are whipped up to a great height, and many, many, many sailors had died in this area. The seabed was littered with boats and still is to this day. They do archaeology down there, finding boats that have been taken down by these storms. And they're in this storm, and the sailors who know the wind and the waves, who know their boat, are starting to, to, to get a little scared. They're starting to get a little fearful. They're like, this isn't good. Jesus said, go to the other side, so let's keep pressing in. Let's keep going. Jesus said, go there, so we're going there. Jesus just healed all these people. We need to listen to him. Jesus has got authority that nobody else has. We need to listen to him. Just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. And then they start to fear for their lives as the boat is filling with water, and they're like, what are we going to do? How are we going to survive this? And finally, they get so afraid that they come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we're done for. Jesus, we're going to die that's what, that's what the Greek here says. It says, Lord, 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 we're going to perish. You know, the, the loose translation is, we're all going to die, right? That's what it means. And they felt it. They were like scared. But Jesus, everybody say, but Jesus. Aren't those some of the best words ever? But Jesus. Now, I was lost in darkness and depression, but Jesus. I was hopeless, but Jesus. I was stuck, but Jesus. But Jesus. When he was finally awakened by the disciples shouting, he rubs the sleep out of his eyes and he stands up 
And I don't know if it was me, I probably would have thrown up over the edge at this point. But Jesus seems to have an iron stomach and he stands up and he looks at them with tired eyes and he says to them, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Is Jesus dumb? I mean, is this, this is like the stupidest question ever, right? You know, they say there are no dumb questions except for maybe this one. Why are you afraid? They're like, why am I afraid? Why am I scared? Oh, I don't know. That giant wave that's about to roll over the top of us. Oh, I don't know. The boats at the bottom and all the sailors who are drowned. All the people who are turning and screaming, running for home as fast as they can on their boats, getting out of the water. I don't know, Jesus. Why am I afraid? I'm afraid I'm going to drown. That's why I'm afraid. That's what these guys are saying. And then Jesus adds, Oh, you of little faith. Did you catch that? Oh, you of little faith. Jesus doesn't relate faithlessness to doubt and disbelief in this moment. He relates faith to not being afraid in the midst of the storm. He chides their lack of faith because they were afraid. Everyone say afraid. You guys sounded like you were afraid when you said that just now. Just making sure you're all awake. That's why I have you do that. Fear comes in a lot of different colors, doesn't it? A whole lot of different colors. Xanthanophobia, that's the fear of yellow. Turophobia, fear of cheese. Hylophobia, fear of trees. Nomophobia, the fear of being out without the fear of being without mobile phone coverage. Yeah, pretty much. I, I, I imagine the first day of high school camp was just anxiety-riddled young adults who I can't have my phone. Um, how about pogonophobia. That's the fear of beards. Like one in a million people suffer from those kinds of phobias, right? I mean, it's like one in a million at best suffer from these things. But fear comes from more than just phobias, right? Fear comes from a lot of different places. When we face change, we fear the new thing. When money is tight, we fear we might not make the bills. When new people join the church, we fear we might lose something about the church that we love. We fear what others think about us. We worry, we work really hard for 50 or 60 years, and in the end, we fear what will happen if we stop working. Not that I'm not going to pay my bills, but who am I if I'm not working? Who am I if I'm not the manager of this or the, the owner of that or the, the office person of this? We fear the things that are out of our control. We fear the loss of what we love, and above all, we fear death. But back in the boat where the disciples are experiencing aquaphobia, right? the fear of drowning, people behold, it says, stand in awe and wonder, Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. In this instance, faith is the belief that the voice of Jesus is greater than the roar of the storm. Let me say that again. Faith in this moment, faith in the face of fear is the deep belief that Jesus' voice is greater than even the roar of the storm. I have found that as I've gotten into this, I've gotten into this language habit in life where I'll say things like, I'm afraid that, you know, and it'd be the simplest, most innocuous little things like, you know, what, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? Like, oh, I'm afraid that the weather's going to be awful, or I'm, I'm afraid that they're not going to make it on time, or I'm afraid that, you know, and I just keep adding this thing to it. And Heidi has started, she called me on it, this is about a year ago or so. She's, she's like, are you really afraid? Why do you keep saying that? I'm like, well, I don't mean I'm afraid. I mean, you know, I think that the negative is going to happen or I'm mildly concerned. I'm afraid that she isn't going to follow through with what she's doing. 
And I, I, I realize that I keep saying, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And it's one thing to be afraid, but it's another thing to constantly speak fear, to constantly declare my fear, to give it power and to give it voice. And when I do that, I realize that there's a lack of faith in God. I'm, I'm afraid that the offering isn't going to be enough this week. I'm afraid we're not going to make it. Or I'm afraid that people aren't going to respond to our signs. Or I'm afraid that my sermon is going to fall flat. We say these things. I speak them all the time. And I realize that there is a genuine lack of faith in me as I bow to fear. So I've been working on catching myself. I say things like, oh, I'm afraid, no, wait. I'm concerned. And I want to start adding, I'm concerned, but Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Why do I believe that? Because of what happens next. Jesus rose out of his slumber and he rebuked the wind and the waves. First, he rebukes the disciples. Oh, you have little faith. Why are you afraid? And then he rebukes the wind and the waves. And like, again, I said in Mark, he, in the same story, he stands up and he just says, peace be still. And suddenly the whole ocean was calm. The word rebuke basically just means that to give it its just desserts. It could be easily honoring somebody. You know, I give, I give Sarah honor because, Sarah, you're just such a great kid. I just gave you your just desserts. But just as equally, I could be saying, Doug, you need to shape up. You got to get it into gear or else. And Jesus looks at the wind and the waves and he says, knock it off. In Scottish, he would have said, shoot it. And instantly, the cyclonic winds that are tearing up the oceans, that are threatening to swamp the boat and to kill all the disciples, suddenly go, the ocean goes flat. Now, some people want to take this and say it's not a miracle because these storms are so crazy. They just blow out. They come in from nowhere, and then they go out just as fast. But the text here sa- doesn't say that the wind just went away. It says that the, the sea became calm. And the image that it is giving there is that it became water skiing weather. All of a sudden, the lake was like glass instantaneously. And that's why the disciples marveled and they said, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So they make it across to the other side. It's less than three miles, but it was a fight for their lives. They're exhausted. Jesus is already exhausted. And normally when a storm comes like, up like that, people that are sailing on these oceans, they know they're going to be blown off course, right? If the wind was so strong that it was tearing the sails and parting the stays and, and the ropes were snapped, and the, the oars, the, water, the boat is full. They had to let their oars go and the water's coming out. They're going to wash ashore wherever they wash ashore. They're going to be off course. And that's what it seems like happens if you read this. They come to the other side and they come ashore in what is now, again, the Golan Heights area. And this is a place where nobody goes. And the reason nobody goes is because there are two men living there who are demon-possessed. In another part of the Bible, we find out that one of them, when Jesus talks to him, he says, who are you? He says, I am legion. So in other words, there are hundreds of demons resident in this one man. And they were violent. They would hurt people. They would beat people and even kill people in that area. They lived in tombs inside with dead and putrefying bodies. They could care less. They were the worst of the worst and the most dangerous men alive. In fact, the town had actually come together at one point and subdued just one of these men and bound him in shackles. And we find in another text in Luke that he tears the shackles apart. He is so strong. So nobody goes there. And we have these disciples who are looking like drowned rats and Jesus whose hair is probably lank and damp. We always imagine Jesus with good hair, right? But Jesus in this moment, he's probably like wringing it out and his clothes are just hanging on him from the storm. And he steps ashore and it seems like he's off course. 
because he is faced with these two demoniacs, which is a person who's been possessed by a demon. Now in verse 29, we see this word again, behold. Everyone say behold. behold. You still, you're still with me. You're good. You're still here. Jesus is never, ever off course. Jesus is never off course. He is always right where he needs to be. In fact, he tells the disciples later on that he is only said and only done and only gone to the places that he saw his father going. He only goes where his father leads him. And in this instance, he is right exactly where he needs to be. And that means that Jesus is willing to go where nobody else is willing to go. He is never off course and he is always in the right place. He's right to the people who need him most, to the scary places, to the places that are uncomfortable, to the tombs where the people are shackled and in chains and bound by evil and darkness. Instead of attacking, which is what you would expect, right? I love the tensions in this story. You would expect these two men who had beaten other people to rush the disciples, to come rushing down in all of their demon fury to attack the disciples. And instead, instead they come out of the tombs and stand at a distance, and they say, Son of God, what do you have to do with us? What are you doing here? These demons knew exactly what the future held for them. They, they knew the book of Revelation before the book of Revelation was written. They knew that in the end, and I'm going to spoil the story for you. If you haven't read the whole Bible, the end of the book, it ends with God wins. Okay? Just spoiled it. Spoiler alert! God wins in the end, and they know that they are destined to lose but they also know that there is an appointed time for this. And they're like, this isn't it yet. This isn't the moment yet. You can't come for us yet. They've been listening in the demon grapevine. They heard what happened on the other side of the lake. They heard what happened to that other demon that got cast out of that man. That demon probably came skipping across the router going, Jesus is here. The son of God is here. Jesus is here. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? So these demons came out of the cave, not with fury, but with fear. Did you notice? The disciples were in the boat and they feared now we see the demons coming out of the tombs in fear. The disciples feared the wind and the waves, but what do the demons fear? Jesus. Jesus is willing to go where no, else, no one else can go. And with just one word, just one word, in fact, that whole passage, Jesus doesn't say anything. It says that they landed in this place, that the disciples were on the boat. It says that these demoniacs lived there. This is what it looked like. This is where they were living. This is how it was. This is what the demon said. Jesus doesn't say anything. He's probably still wringing out his hair. He's just all casual, like, I'm sure the disciples are like, you know, sputtering water, and then they see the demons, and they're like, oh man, we're not where we should be. We're off course. Jesus just wringing out his hair. It's ringing out my hair. Got to get the locks looking good. And the demons are talking to me. He just says, go. One word, go. And they fled. And the text says, behold. Standing on wonder. The demons fled. They went into some pigs. They went over a steep bank into the sea and they drowned. Why? I don't know. I don't know. Why pigs? Why'd they choose pigs? I don't know. Nobody knows. Messed up somebody's livelihood in that moment because somebody was trying to make money on those pigs. And that's why they asked Jesus to leave. But here's what I see in these two texts. This is really important for us to know. The enemies of Jesus are soft. The enemies of Jesus are weak. They're punks. The enemies of Jesus are bullies. And you know what happens when you confront a bully? They back down every time because they're weak and soft. 
They want to keep people bound in fear. They want to keep people cowering, afraid to go places, afraid to step out, afraid to be in the presence of Jesus, afraid to raise their hands, afraid to give, afraid to go, afraid to to serve, afraid to to speak out when Jesus speaks to you to share his love with somebody, afraid to look like a fool. The enemies of God want to keep you afraid. But the enemies of Jesus are soft. All the power of hell compared to the power of Jesus is just chumps, posers, weaklings, imposters. We're coming to a close here. Last week, Heidi taught a passage where Jesus asked, what do you want from me? What crazy question. Jesus is full of crazy questions. Why are you afraid? I don't know. I don't know why I'm afraid, Jesus. Look around. You get get sleepy dirt out of your eyes to see what situation I'm in. Why are you afraid? Jesus also asked in that moment, what do you want from me? What do you want? I believe that Jesus is asking that of you right now. In your boat, in your storm, in your place of fear, what do you want from Jesus? What do you need from him? What do you want from him right now? I believe that in this moment, for some of you, Jesus is saying, peace be still. Just peace, man. Peace, be still, be calm. Let faith rise up in you to believe that Jesus' voice is greater than the storm. Some of us are being overwhelmed by fears of all kinds, great and small, and they force us to act in certain ways, to stop doing things, to not do things, to not speak, to not step out. And Jesus is saying, let faith become, like fear become faith. Some of you are being called into places that you don't want to go. It may be here in Pullman. (laughs) It may be across town. It may be in your workplace. It may be in your family, in your home. It may be with your friends. And you're not sure you want to go there. You're not sure you want to say what you feel like you need to say. You're not sure you want to do what you feel like you need to do. And Jesus is saying, let fear become faith. Step out. Face your enemies. Face the enemies of God. Don't face them with timidity. Don't face them with trembling. But face them with faith that the voice of Jesus is louder than the roar of the storm. That the power of Jesus is greater than the power of the enemies of God. Pursue him with all that you have. This morning what I want to do is uh, break us up into groups of three for about five minutes. And I'd just like you to share in groups of three or four, um, however it's comfortable. Make sure that nobody's left out. But find a couple people to sit and talk about what you just heard God say to you. Not what I said. I know some of you guys got a whole different sermon than what I just preached. But what did God say to you? What place do you need faith to rise up in the face of fear? We're going to go for about five minutes, and then we're going to close with some worship, all right? So let's do that now. Go into groups of three or four and share with one another a place that you need faith to rise up in the place of fear, and then pray for one another.